reading from John chapter 12 this morning, beginning at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity once again to come and to worship together. Truly, you are worthy to receive all of our of our honor and our praise and, and uh, our affection. Lord, you are worthy to receive the worship that is in our hearts today. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we enter into now this time of ministry through the Word, as we worship you in the preaching of your Word, we pray, Lord, that you would use this time to honor and glorify yourself. We pray that Christ will be central and that the Spirit of God would fill us in such a way that we would see him more clearly. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. So good to see you all this morning, and uh, we're coming up on Christmas very quickly. It's uh, it's come quicker this year than any I can remember, uh, and uh, we're glad that you're able to be with us today. John chapter twelve is a special is a special chapter. It really reveals to us much of the Lord's, the Lord's feelings, His emotions, as uh, He, as the cross begins to become clearer into view. In the late 1600s to mid 1700s, there was a, a movement that came out of Germany called Pietism. This movement was viewed in that day as a highly intellectualized teaching that came out of the Protestant Reformation. It was uh, led by a man named Philip Spenner, a German who followed Martin Luther in the Reformation. He is credited to be called the father of pietism. Spinner was not a heretic or a false teacher. 
But in his belief that one could hear God's, it was his belief that one could hear God's voice apart from the scriptures. And he began to, in that belief, he began to deviate somewhat from the sufficiency of scripture. He placed experience and practicality in the Christian life on a higher level than doctrinal teaching And exposition from Scripture. Of course, there can be no real Christian life, practice of Christian life, apart from sound doctrine and teaching. That's where it comes from. Spencer followed in the teachings of the Lutheran Church. But disregarded many, many, in many ways the words of Luther himself. Luther said, quote, Whoever wants to hear God should read the Holy Scripture. I began to think about how people hear God. And so I found one writer, I don't know who the writer was, but this particular writer seems to. Uh, share the sentiments of many in our day that one can hear God in a multiplicity of ways. So I, I made a list of the ways that this one particular writer claims that God can be heard. And so I've listed them. There are, there are 11 of them and these are the ways. Number one, God speaks through His Word. We can, certainly, we can certainly agree with that. Number two, hearing God's still, small voice. Well, I don't know exactly what that means. Um, is it a whisper in the ear? I mean, obviously it's taken from the time when Elijah was uh, being persecuted and he was standing at the entrance of the cave and there was a wind and there was an earthquake and then it says there was a still, small voice. Is that what people mean by that today? I really have no idea. Hearing, number three, hearing the voice of God through impressions and sensing. Mm, that sounds extremely dangerous to me. Because your heart and my heart is desperately wicked. And we do not know what our hearts are capable of. So sensing things, maybe not such a good idea. God hears, number four, God hears, you can hear God through angels or messengers. Heavenly messengers, and some people claim to have Heard this. Oral Roberts claims to have uh, heard these things from angels. So on and so on. Number five, recognizing God's voice through creation. <clears throat> Certainly, we can see things in creation that remind us of God. Number six, God speaking through visions. Seven, through dreams. Eight, through trances. To me, that is very dangerous as well, 
because it is very subjective. Number nine, hearing God's voice through godly counsel and fellowship with other Christians. Wow, that sounds so good, doesn't it? But can we really speak for God to other people in counsel and in fellowship? Number ten, God uses circumstances to speak to us. Finally, number eleven, the audible voice of God. Some people claim to have heard God's voice audibly. He spoke to me. I could hear him speaking to me. Well, we know that all of these things, all of these supposed ways that God speaks, out of these eleven things, and there may be more that people could add to these, out of these, only number one is credible. Some people say, well, God speaks to me through prayer. Actually, prayer is not God speaking to you. It's you speaking to God. Unless you have your Bible open and you're reading Scripture as you're praying, then God may be speaking to you. Listen to me very carefully. God only speaks through His Word. That's the only way He speaks. So if you want to hear the voice of God, go to the Scriptures and read the Scriptures. Because this is the voice of God. This is how God speaks. And He will not use any other means to speak to you. The voice that these people heard on this particular day of John 12, verse 28, Jesus said, was for their benefit, not His. And so they heard a voice, but many of them didn't know what it was. And just like today, many people don't recognize the voice of God when you open the pages of Scripture and you read from it. They don't recognize that as the voice of God. They'd rather have some kind of existential or, or specific flash of God speaking than than to just simply read what He says in His Word. And so, this voice on this day was so that the people would recognize, so that His disciples primarily would recognize that He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He He came, God's hand was upon him, and he would be the one that would save his people from their sins. The question arises then, what did the voice on that day reveal? What did it reveal? What was its content? And Jesus gives us what the voice contained. It revealed that God had already revealed glorified Himself through the life and ministry of His Son, and that now He would glorify Himself again with what was going to happen next. 
So Jesus gives us this further information as to God's work of glorifying himself. That is God's chief business. That is his chief goal, to glorify himself. He is worthy of glory. And one day the whole earth will be full of his glory. And, and everybody will glorify him perfectly. I long for a world like that, don't you? All right, so here's, here's uh, what it revealed. It revealed three things. And these three things that will glorify God as Christ gives them here are seen as, as though they have already occurred. In other words, they were so sure to, to happen, so sure to bring God's glory, that Jesus speaks of them as a future event that has already occurred. His rejoicing, he is rejoicing in the victories that he will accomplish because they are sure to be accomplished in the future. And so that's why he uses the word now. Now are these things true. They haven't happened yet, but they are as sure as if they had already happened. There are three of them. Let's look at the first one. We see it in... In verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. That's the first thing. Christ's death would bring judgment upon the world. Now the use of the word world, in using the word world here, he is speaking about the evil satanic world system which is operated by and governed by Satan and carried out by people. So when the world works, this evil system of this world works, it is working by the direction of Satan but carried out by people. It is, it is the evil machine that causes the world to operate for the devil. It characterizes the rebellion of humanity against God. And it dooms them under God's condemnation. William Hendrickson writes, we take the term world here as indicating the Jewish people who rejected him, their leaders who condemned him, Judas who betrayed him, the soldiers who mocked him, Pilate who sentenced him. In brief, this whole society of evil men alienated from God and having the devil as its prince. And that, my friends, has not changed. That's how the world operates. It operates from the one who said, I will rise above the throne of God. 
I will be greater than the Most High. And in that prideful sin, he fell and took a third of the angels with him. And he seeks to take humanity with him as well. This time of judgment has already been set by God the Father and will be carried out by Jesus Himself. Acts chapter 17. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. I'm going to have you turning to some scriptures this morning. Sometimes I think it's good for you to place your eyes on the scriptures themselves rather than just take my word for it that I'm quoting them properly. I don't ever want you to take for granted anything that I say. It must be proven by Scripture. And if I say something ever that is wrong according to Scripture, then I will back up on it. That's why I try to get it as accurate as I can every time that I bring it to you. Notice Acts chapter 17. Notice verse 30. Paul is on Mars Hill. He's he's speaking with the philosophers, the Greek philosophers. And he gets to this point in his speech, and this is what he says. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God is the God of heaven. His command to everyone is to repent of their sins. Verse 31. Why should they do this? Because He has fixed a day. You see those words? That means the day is set. The day for judgment is set. We don't know exactly when that day will be. God has not revealed it to us. But the day is set. He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. When the judgment comes, it will not be on man's terms. It will be on God's terms. It will be a righteous judgment. And no one will be able to open their mouths in any kind of defense for themselves. God is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Who is that person? He tells us. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. It's Jesus. Jesus is the man. Who will judge the world in righteousness? He is the one who will condemn the world in judgment. Jesus came into the world not to judge the world, but to save it. However, because of men's willful rejection of His grace, they condemned themselves. Listen to the Scriptures. John 1, verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, yet the world did not know Him. 
John 3.18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. They've condemned themselves already because they do not believe in the name of the only Son of God. John 9.39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. John 12.48, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. What is that judge? It will be the word that I have spoken. It will judge him on the last day. In other words, the words of Jesus Christ will do the judging. Now Jesus is looking ahead. At this particular time, he is he is looking at what is coming in the future, in the very near future, just literally hours away. But he's also looking far past that. He's looking ahead to the last day. And what he sees is the judgment of the sinful world of men. His coming into the world was the light of the world. And that coming in as the light of the world forced a division between the works of darkness and the brilliance of his own deeds in his life. Every deed that he did was a deed of light. There was nothing hidden. It was all out in the open. Far different from the works, the sinful works of people who love to hide and do things in the dark. So that they won't get caught in their evil deeds. Not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. He hid nothing. He didn't have to hide anything because he was perfectly obedient to the Heavenly Father. <clears throat> the very fact that he is the light is cause for evil men to hate him. Because his light exposes their dark, sinful deeds. Look at John chapter 3, if you would. Now, we've, we've already studied this, but unless you are extremely intelligent and have a photographic memory, you probably don't know what was said back in John chapter 3. Look at it. Verse 19. We're substantiating the fact that Jesus is speaking about the judgment that is coming upon the world. Notice verse 19 of chapter 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their works should be exposed. This is why people cover up. This is why this is why people try to excuse away. This is why people 
run from the light. They don't want to get caught out. This is saying that the evil world system and those who are in it hate Jesus Christ because he shines his light on their evil works. Look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, there is no shame No need for hiding when one is doing the will of God. And following His Word. The world thought that it was passing judgment on Jesus. If we can just get rid of this man. If we can just get rid of this man who shines so bright so that we won't appear so bad. Let's just get rid of him. Let's kill him. You say, I can't, I can't believe that they thought that. No, you would have thought that too had you been there on that day. If that would have been you and me, we would have said crucify him. Get rid of him. He's, he's, he's shining his light on all that I'm doing. He exposes my shame. Let's just get rid of him so we can compare ourselves to each other. And that way we, we don't look so bad. You start comparing yourself to other people. Or you start comparing one against another. And you'll come up bad every time. Listen, if you're going to compare yourself to somebody, compare yourself to Jesus. And you'll always come up wanting But He is with you. If you know Him, He's with you. He lives within you through His Spirit. And you can live His life. Their victory was the death of Jesus, they thought. God's victory was the death of Jesus, He knew. The victory the Jews thought that they had would only seal their condemnation. And so, now is the judgment of this world. Second, he says in verse 31, Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. In other words, secondly, Christ's death would not only bring judgment on the world, but it would bring judgment on Satan. We think of sometimes dictators and despots and people, kings who rule in the nations of the world who are evil and wicked and they they don't even care about their own people and we think the world would be far better if they just weren't in it. Think about the ruler of the earth, the ruler of this world system. What would it be like if he didn't exist? Here he is called by the Lord, the ruler of this world. He is called that again in verse in chapter 14, verse 30, in chapter 16, verse 11. 
In other places, he is called the devil, the god of this world, the prince and the power of the air. He's called the evil one. His name was Lucifer. It is now Satan, the deceiver. When we speak about Satan as if he were nothing, and I hear this sometimes from people, they talk about Satan as though he's, he's just really nothing to worry about. I think, how foolish. Do we realize the power that Satan has over this world, the grip that he has on it? He is the ruler of it. He is the one who rules in the evil system. He hates God and his desire was to kill the Son of God. Remember that Satan, remember Satan doesn't know everything. He's not like God. He's, he's, uh, He's limited in his knowledge. But he does know the scriptures. He knows the scriptures. You remember he quoted it to Jesus during the temptation of Christ. Is it not written? Is it not written? He said it over and over. He knows what is happening in real time. And he knows what the future brings as far as what the word of God reveals. But he is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He only goes on what God has said and time reveals. However, he must have thought during this time when Christ was headed to the cross, he must have thought that he could gain something in seeing Jesus dead. That possibly he could reestablish his, his, himself and Rise above the throne of God. That was his goal originally. Otherwise, he would not have been so involved in his death. Jesus, as in the judgment of the world, looks forward now to the judgment of Satan on the last day. The smashing of Satan's kingdom is found in the death of Christ. Now we're going to look at the passage a little closer here in a moment. But let me give you a a picture from Revelation of this last day event that Jesus sees ahead. Revelation chapter 12. Turn with me. Revelation 12. Now the actual day comes in Revelation 20. But this is what Jesus is alluding to here in his words of chapter 12. Notice verse 10. Revelation 12, 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. 
For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. People say sometimes, well, where is Satan? Well, some people think he's just everywhere, but he, he can't be everywhere. He's limited to one place at one time, just like you and I are. Even though he is an angel, even though he has great power and, can, and, and is a spirit and can be one place very quickly and then another place, he has that power, but he can only be one place at one time. Here it says that he is the accuser of our brothers. He has been thrown down. Listen to the next words. Who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan still has access to heaven and access to the throne of God. What does he do there? He must get information from his horde of demons who see things and report to him because he's not omniscient. He can't know everything at once like God does. And so when he hears of something or when uh, something's reported to him, he points the finger and accuses the Christians in their lives before God. You see what they you see what that person did down there? That one that you redeemed, look what he did. That's why you and I need an attorney in heaven. Because we we can't plead our own case. It has to be pleaded for us. And John says that Christ is our attorney. He pleads our case before the throne of God. And knocks back Satan's accusations against us. But one day, Satan will not be able to enter into God's presence and accuse any longer. And this is where it happens, right here in Revelation 12. Notice verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved, their li- they loved not their lives unto death. Now notice the verse in verse in chapter 12. <clears throat> he says, "Now will the ruler of this world be cast out?" Hasn't been cast out yet, but Jesus is looking here to to Revelation 12 when he will be cast down. He'll be cast down from heaven and he will not be able to return to heaven any longer. His domain His place of being will be in this world. It does not say he is cast out, but he will be. Now will be. Again, Jesus is looking ahead to the day when Satan will lose all of his rule and authority over the earth. That day will happen in the great tribulation that will come upon the whole earth when he takes when that takes place. Once that takes place, he will be permanently thrown out of heaven to which he has access today. 
let me let me read Revelation 12, verse 7 for you. Here's what it says. Now war rose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that's Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So he'll be confined to the earth. And he and literally all hell will break loose on earth when that happens. Christ's death will be the final nail in Satan's coffin, so to speak. Hebrews chapter two, verse fourteen. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took on the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So when Jesus says judgment is going to, now is judgment of this world, he's also looking and saying judgment, the judgment of Satan is here as well the ruler of this world system. Notice the third thing that he says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Remember that the nations are in view here. The context clearly teaches us that these Greeks came to see Jesus. We would see Jesus. They represent the people of every nation on earth. In this context, that places the Jews and the Gentiles on level ground before God. No longer can the Jew see themselves as the only people of God on earth. Now God is going to reach out into the masses of the Gentile nations and draw to Himself peoples from every language and nation and people group on the earth. Jesus said He would draw all men to Himself. Does that mean that He's going to draw every single individual on earth to Himself? Certainly it does not mean that. The all in all men must be taken in context. It's not every individual on earth that is being drawn, but all types of people, all classes of people that are on the earth from every quarter of the earth. To say that it means all humanity, as in every single individual, that they will all be redeemed in the end is universalism. And the Bible never teaches universalism. The woman at the well in chapter 4 said this, We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. In other words, she was talking about not just the Jews... Jesus had already told her salvation is of the Jews, but she sees now that it goes beyond the Jews. She is now one of His people. She has been drawn to Him. He is now the Savior of the world. 
to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles, to all classes of people. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this phrase refers specifically to those who have died to themselves and are bearing much fruit. This is what he says in verse 24 when he speaks of the seed that falls into the ground and dies. And if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Listen to Listen to, to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Well, what does that mean? To deny yourself is to say, I am no longer... I'm no longer in charge of my life. I will deny my life for Christ. And in order to do that, one has to take up the emblem of death, which is the cross, and follow in Jesus' path. That means you have to do that every day of your life. Now, just denying yourself for the sake of denying will not save you. The, de- the denial is a denial of one's own life for the life of Christ. It is a giving over of oneself to Jesus Christ in faith and following Him because He is now my Lord. He calls the shots of my life. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? It profits nothing. Now we'll get a lot more teaching on this whole idea of fruit in the life of the believer in chapter 15. That's what that's coming. The phrase in verse 32 Verse 32, if I be lifted up, is explained in connection with John chapter 3, verse 14, and Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 to 9. Let's look at them. Turn back to John 3 again. And notice what he says. Now he is speaking to Nicodemus. And he refers, as he's speaking to Nicodemus, he refers to a time in Israel's history when they rebelled against God, spoke against God and against Moses, and God judged them. It was an immediate judgment. John 3.14 And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why would he say this? Why would he quote, or why would he allude to 
this story from Numbers chapter 21. Turn to Numbers 21. Let's look at it. I told you you're going to have to turn. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book. All right, notice Numbers 21, verse, beginning at verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? Ah, thank you. <laughs> I was looking for it and it wasn't here. Why have you brought us up? Out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What is, that worthless? what is the worthless food? It's the manna. It's the heavenly bread that God provided for them. But it obviously didn't have a lot of flavor. And so they, they're grumbling about it. So what did God do? Verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He would take away these serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now bronze, or brass, is a symbol of judgment in the Old Testament and in all the Scripture. And so God is judging the people. Now, this story takes place in the wilderness and their wanderings before they entered the promised land. People were constantly complaining about their situation in the, in the wilderness. And here they speak against Moses and against God. Remember, when you speak against God's spokesman, you're speaking against God. That's not to say that the person is God or that the person uh, has any particular uh, power of that sort. So the people are speaking against Moses and as doing, doing so, they speak against God. Judgment fell as, as God sent poisonous snakes. Now, in that part of the world, they were probably vipers or cobras of some sort. And they bit the people and the people started to die from the snake bites. The people of Israel were in some way attuned to God's judgment more so than people are today. Because the judgment came immediately. And they immediately saw their sin and began to cry out to Moses. It is not that way today. 
You can preach about judgment all you want to, but because it doesn't happen now, people don't think about it as being real. They don't think, it's oh, that's down the road somewhere. I've got plenty of time to worry about that later. Boast not yourself of tomorrow, for you do not know what a day will bring forth. That's what the rich man did. Oh, I've got it made. I can just sit back and take it easy. And he died that same night. Today, if you mention to a person that we are under God's judgment, they laugh at you. They ah, no way. Bunch of myths. So Moses prayed for mercy and God gave Moses instructions for deliverance. Now this is, this bronze serpent in the wilderness is a type, an Old Testament type of the crucifixion of Christ. The pole is the cross and the snake on the pole is the Son of God being judged for man's sin. Now we know that the analogy We know that that's the analogy because Jesus interprets this Old Testament scripture for us by saying at the end of John 3.14, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Just like Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness and anyone who looked to it and believed what God said will live so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that if anyone believes in Him, they will live. William Hendrickson writes, comparing the two passages, in Numbers the people are face to face with physical death. In John, mankind is viewed as exposed to eternal death because of sin. In Numbers it is a type that is lifted up This type, the brazen serpent or the brass serpent, has no power to heal. It points toward the antitype, Christ, who does have the power to heal. In in Numbers, the emphasis is on physical healing. When a man's eyes was fixed upon the brass serpent, he was restored to health. But in John, it speaks of spiritual life, everlasting life. That is granted to him who places his trust in the one who is lifted up. This passage, this passage makes the cross a necessity. For Jesus, the sin bearer, who would be lifted up and heal the sin sick souls of his people. And give them life. The word must in John 3.14 expresses this necessity of dying on a cross. Just as verse 24 in chapter 12 expresses it in the death of the seed that is planted in the earth. Which when it dies brings forth much fruit. It states that there is no other option but death on a cross. That is God's only plan. There is no plan B. So God made it so that plan A would not fail. 
but would accomplish exactly what His will dictated. It was necessary part of God's plan to save lost sinners. Now Jesus knew this all along. He knew it. This was not news to Him. It's not as though He came to this point and God said, Oh, by the way, you're going to die on a cross. No, He knew He was going to die on a cross. Well before. In John 3, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go, He must go to Jerusalem, that He must suffer, that He must be killed, and that He must be raised. Now John uses this word, must, to indicate the absolute binding inevitability of the cross. It was God's only remedy for the removal of the judgment of sin. One last thing. Look at the phrase once again, to be lifted up. In John's Gospel, it always refers to the cross. Always refers to the cross. It's used in 828, 1232, 1234. It encompasses, however, much more than the cross by itself. The cross is the central theme of the gospel. But it is not the last part of the story. For without the cross, there would be nothing else. But because the cross is the central theme, everything else follows it. Notice, it can't stop there because Jesus is not on the cross anymore. And I tell you, I have, I have to despise those crucifixes that I see where Jesus is hanging there on the cross because He's not hanging there anymore. The cross is empty. So what does it actually portray? What does this phrase portray? To be lifted up. It portrays the cross itself and the crucifixion. It portrays the resurrection. It portrays the, the ascension of Christ from earth to heaven. And it portrays the exaltation of Christ in His coronation as He goes back and takes His place at the throne of God. He does this. He, he talks. How do we know that this is what he's talking about? Because anyone could look at this and say, well, that's obvious he's talking about the cross. Because it says right after that in verse, uh, <clears throat> says right after that in verse 33, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So he's obviously talking about the cross, right? But he's talking about far more than the cross when he says the Son of Man must be lifted up. He uses he does this by using a little Greek preposition, a little two-letter preposition called ek. There are two ways to say from in the Greek language. One is the word apa, which means 
from the edge or the surface of something. Sort of like uh, I would say I, I was on the ground and I stood up from the ground. You've stood up from the surface of the ground. The other word, ek, means to come from the middle of something or from the midst of something. Uh, It is a separation that takes place. I could say, I came out from the room which indicated you were in the room and you separated yourself from the room that you were in. This is the word ek. So, when Jesus says this, He is saying, I will be lifted up on a cross and then I will be lifted up from the middle of the earth in resurrection and then I will be lifted up from the middle of the earth in ascension Then I will be lifted up to exaltation and coronation as I take my seat next to the throne in heaven. It means all those things. So the gospel is not just one who hung on a cross and then died there. It is one who was lifted up on a cross and died there and was taken down and was buried in the earth and came out from the grave and was then finally lifted up out of the midst of this evil world to the place that he deserved, the place where he was before with the Heavenly Father. And when all that happened, in Jesus' mind, remember, he's looking He's looking ahead. When all this, he sees all this in his omniscient mind. He says, I'm going to draw all of my people to myself. They're scattered across the globe. They're made up of Jews and they're made up of Gentiles in every nation and language and people group. And I'm going to draw them all to myself. When I am finally exalted, I'm going to send my spirit. And my spirit, the spirit of the Father, will draw them to me. And I'll redeem them. And they will be with me one day forever and ever. That's what he sees. What a glorious salvation that our God has given us. And because... Because it all took place just as, he, just as He said it would, you and I have hope. We have hope that one day we will be with Him. We'll see Him face to face. And we'll never be parted from Him. He lives in us now through His Spirit, but we will live with Him face to face when that day comes. Will you live with Him? If you know Him, if you've repented of your sins and you're following Christ and you're in love with Christ and you want to do His will, you'll be with Him. If you're not, you won't. But it's not too late. As long as there's breath in your body, you can fall down on your knees before God and cry out for mercy and God will give you mercy. Repent of your sins and God will save you. 
doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, where you've been. God is merciful through His Son, the Lord Jesus. But that's the only way that you'll receive mercy. Our Father, we thank You for this Lord's Day and we thank You for the Gospel of John. We thank You that You reached down into the miry muck of Humanity, people wallowing in their own sinful pursuits in this life. And you pulled us out. You brought us to yourself. You redeemed us by the blood of your Son. You saved us from the judgment that is coming. And there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. But Lord, there are those who do not know you. And there is condemnation because they don't believe. I pray that you would give to them the gift of repentance and faith to believe. That they would find in you forgiveness and everlasting life as you've shown and given to us. We thank you for your promises and for your goodness and grace to us. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.